And you know what? In the moment, sometimes you can't see how this part of what you're doing is so integral to your mission. And it doesn't feel scintillating. It's not exciting. It's only with time and with remove that we can begin to see that. Hi, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to episode 12 of Human and Holy, a podcast by The Tanya Project, where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored by Rifki Rappaport and is dedicated in memory of Yehuda ben Yitzchak Shmuel of Blessed Memory. She writes, May his neshama ascend to the greatest of heights. May the lives of his wife and family be blessed in every way. And may all of us who are lucky enough to know and love him merit to emulate the light of kindness, generosity, and joie de vivre that he embodied. Thank you, Rifki, for making today's episode happen, and may the neshama of Yehuda ben Yitzchak Shmuel have an aliyah. To sponsor an episode or become a supporter on Patreon, please reach out at humanandholy at gmail.com. In today's episode, I interview Rifki Slanim, who is a world-renowned author and lecturer, and also, more personally, a dear role model to me since the day that I met her. I met Rifki when her son married my sister. I was 16 years old. I was deep in my own teenagehood and really thirsty for strong female role models who were committed to the Torah, but still fiercely and uniquely themselves. I remember writing in my journal after meeting her, I am just glad that someone like Rifki Slanim exists. As an example to me, of what it looks like to be unapologetically yourself, searching for the answers that you personally need while still maintaining an unwavering commitment to God. Growing up, the topic of Kabbalah Sol made me cringe a little. Kabbalah Sol literally means accepting the yoke, and if not explained properly, can easily come across as burdensome. Today, Rifki shares her personal journey with Kabbalah Sol how she had to confront it head-on throughout her life, and how submission to God is actually the greatest gift we can give ourselves, one we sometimes cannot recognize in the moment. I really can't think of a better person to address this topic than Rifki. She's one of the most dynamic, full, and independent-thinking women I know. And she answers this question, what does it mean to submit ourselves to something higher? And how does that submission lead us to a place that we could never reach on our own? Hi, my name is Rifki Slanim. My husband and I direct the Roar Chabad Center for Jewish Student Life at Binghamton University. We've been doing this for 36 years. We're just getting started. That's the main thing I do. There are some other things I do. But that's our shlichus. That's the heart and soul of our lives. Teaching is my drug of choice. I do a lot of teaching, both here and I lecture in various places. I've done some writing, edited two books, and generally just like to share ideas and engage with people. 
Nice. So first of all, I just want to say that I'm so excited about the topic that you chose. When you mentioned that topic, I thought, I don't want to hear anyone else in the world talk about Kabbalah Sol other than you, literally, because I feel that you're such a full and dynamic person and your personality is not in the slightest bit submissive, which is sometimes what comes to mind when people think of Kabbalah Sol. So I think it's going to be really meaningful to hear from you specifically talking about this topic. So if you could start by sharing what is Kabbalah Sol for the uninitiated or for anyone, really. What is Kabbalah Sol according to the Torah, according to Chassidus? Well, literally the words Kabbalah Sol or Kabbalat Ol means to take upon oneself the yoke. And specifically within the construct of Jewish theology, it's about submission. It's about unequivocal devotion to God's word, to God's will. And it takes particular prominence, I think, in Hasidic teachings and in Hasidic thought, where on the one hand, specifically Hasidus Chabad, there is so much emphasis on the intellect, the intellectual inquiry, the emotive journey. But then there's a level of Kabbalah's all, where one simply submits. And it's a very important concept, both philosophically and in the everyday life. When would you say that you personally began to develop a relationship with the idea of Kabbalah Sol when you first like took a hard look at it as something that applied to your life? That's a hard question. You know, having been observant all of my life and raised within the Hasidic tradition all my life, I would have to say that Kabbalah Sol runs like a kind of like a major artery through everything. But I would say that there are at least two ways in which this has been very personally instructive and meaningful and impactful in my own personal life. One would be vis-a-vis my exploration of Jewish women and Jewish law. When I came to Binghamton, I was catapulted into a situation I did not foresee. At the time, a lot of the major players in the academic and otherwise field of Jewish feminism actually taught at Binghamton. And I was just pummeled by questions, uh, which sent me into my own personal exploration and journey. And Kabbalah Sol is is a very important part of that, because there are still going to be issues that rankle or I find abrasive. But there's a sense of, I understand that it's not about me, and it's not about my feelings, and it's not about my access, and it's not about my parity with anybody else. It's about submitting to a larger goal, a larger vision, the will of God. I would say the other big time that this notion played a role is in being privileged enough to conceive children, and the pregnancies didn't get easier, I'll just say that. And having the Kabbalah's all, having that sense of this is very important, in fact, it's the most important thing I could do to bring another soul into this world, Irrespective of the fact that I feel subhuman, that I'm gripping the sides of the toilet, like, please anchor me as I vomit endlessly. I look into my closet and there are more and more things that don't fit. You know, the zippers don't tell lies. There was even one pregnancy where I ended up in bed for about five months. And I remember that was a very difficult thing. I remember my father actually walking me off the ledge every morning saying to me, 
I know, I know this is very hard for you, but this is, this is really the most important thing you need to be doing. And that was before I had a laptop, <laughs> you know, before an iPhone, I felt really like isolated in bed. I wasn't interested really in the magazines and the books people were throwing at me because although I love to read and, you know, I'll be kind of kindy for the mind also once in a while, it just started to feel so inane. And I started to feel so useless and really emotionally down. And my father would, you know, remind me every single day, irrespective of what it feels like now, this is really the most important thing. So I think like zooming out, Kabbalah's all is about understanding that we are a conduit for something larger than ourselves. And we have to just move out of the way. And that's a really hard thing because I think the world we live in, certainly Western culture, it's all about you. How are you feeling? Are you feeling calibrated? Is this resonating with you? Are you triggered? Is somebody keeping space? And so on and so forth. And we have to really get over ourselves. You know, uh, another way to say this is people running around trying to find themselves. And it's almost like Judaism is saying, lose yourself already. Just lose yourself within something larger. And it'll be really incredible what can happen when you do that. Just get out of your own way. Get out of your own way. Okay. Easier said than done. So first of all, thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, thank you for sharing the personal, the personal story of you really experiencing this, this moment in your life when you really had to get out of the way a little bit and allow and submit yourself to something higher. My question to you is, do you think that Kabbalah Saul in your experience, has to be at the expense of yourself. Just to take a step back for a second, I see you as this tremendous educator and leader and woman who studies and takes her Yiddishkeit very seriously and just has so many gifts to give to the world. Would you say that there is a way to balance Kabbalah Sol and also maintaining a sense of self? And how do you do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the thing about this is that it's very hard for us to take ourselves out of the picture at any given moment. But actually, Kabbalah all allows you, allows you to tether yourself to something higher. And when those moments pass, and they could be days, and they could be months, and it could be years even. But by having anchored ourselves in something larger, we're actually able to accomplish so much more. So we think it's all about doing what we want to do in that moment, in exactly that way. But our perception is very, very limited. And it's so skewed by our infatuation with ourselves and our inability to just let go. So having my children is the greatest blessing anybody could ever be given. They are my greatest gifts. And I think every day, had I not been privileged enough to be taught in such a way and inspired to do what needs to be done, even though I didn't feel like it, how much poorer I would be. People talk about the fact that we live in a predominantly secular culture, but the truth is, I think it's a religiously saturated culture, predominated by a religion called I-ism, and everybody's worshiping at the altar of the I. And really, this idea of Kabbalah's all is about worshiping at the altar of something transcendent, much, much higher than yourself. So actually, I think this concept lies at the very bedrock of Judaism, because when God says to Moshe, 
I want to give the Jews the Torah, go and tell them this, the Jews respond by saying, We will do what it is you ask of us, and then we'll study, and then we'll ruminate, and then we'll contemplate. But first we'll do. And that's really pivotal. So you're saying it's not about not contemplating, but it's about what comes first. Like first the submission has to happen and then the contemplation, the thinking, and then the eye can come in. Yeah. And I and I think that it's an ongoing process. It's kind of like a slinky, like a helix. It's always going to be an interplay of submission and learning. And then when you learn more, there has to be a higher level of submission, which is followed by a higher level of learning, which is followed by a higher level of submission, which is followed in turn by a higher level of understanding. But you know, the Hebrew word chachma is really about the chachma, the ability to ask what, the ability to come to a place where you recognize that you really don't and can't know certain things. Can you give a practical example of how this idea plays a role in your life currently? So you mentioned there's more learning and then there's more submission and then there's more learning and then there's more submission. So I imagine that the submission that you experience currently looks a little different than when you were vomiting over the toilet with your babies. So what type of submission do you experience now on a daily basis or need for submission do you experience? Well, I think it's always going to be about the things that you don't necessarily want to do but have to be done. So for me, I love studying. I love teaching. I'm working on a project now, and I get very immersed in that, and I like working on that. I love spending time with the students. But there are other things that have to be done to keep this organization afloat that I don't absolutely love. But it's part of it. It's got to be done. And it's holy. And God is in those details, just as much as in the soaring moments of inspiration. You're saying like things like cooking or finances or just really practical stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Just got to be done. It's got work. It's got work. Is there anything that you do to make that submission more pleasant or you just really focus like, okay, I'm surrendering. I'm doing what I have to do. I mean, I think surrendering means somewhat counterintuitively not focusing on your surrender. Oh, interesting. You know, just get off of yourself already. Just do it. Just shut up and do it. You know, my maternal grandfather I was very privileged. I grew up in the same home as my grandparents and spent a lot, a lot of time with them. And there was something that he would repeat often. You know how everybody has certain teachings that are just so seminal that they're always bubbling to the top. And he spoke about the time that the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, delivered a Hasidic discourse of all places in a train station. It was a very precarious time. It was a very perilous time for the Rebbe and his Hasidim. They risked their life just to come and see him. And he delivered a teaching on the words, Yihi Hashem Elokeinu Imanu, Kasher Haya Imavuseinu, Al Yazveinu Va'al Yitzhenu. May God be with us like he was with our forefathers. May he not leave us bereft. May he not abandon us. And he asked, why do we say that? You know, we should just say, let God be with us. What, what do we really mean by saying, let God be with us like he was with our forefathers? And he explained that the forefathers of that generation had tremendous self-sacrifice, Messiros Nefesh, which is very highly linked with the idea of Kabbalah Sol, which we started with, submission. Because when you completely submit, you will sacrifice anything for that goal that you submitted to. 
And he said that, you know, the forefathers of that generation, they had tremendous mysterious nevish, they had tremendous self-sacrifice, but they didn't dwell on it. They didn't think about it. They didn't see themselves as practitioners of Kabbalah's ol or mysterious nefesh. They did what they had to do. And so now we ask in our own time that God should allow us to be in his presence. God should not leave us bereft of the ability to do and similarly not be wrapped up in how much we're giving up for him, but to realize and be able to contemplate the absolute pleasure of being in that and the privilege of being in that relationship. Wow. And I think if they needed to hear that then, <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that. We're living through a global pandemic and everybody's talking about how it's unprecedented. You know, us with our Uber Eats and our Netflix <laughs> in our warm homes and comfortable lives. And it's unprecedented. I mean, people live through wars. People live through such travail that we cannot even imagine. So, yeah, it's very connected, this idea of, you know, not spending our entire life taking our own inner temperature, you know, not getting stuck in our heads, you know, just... So- do it. I feel like that brings such a unique angle. Having Kabbalah Sol, but not being so wrapped up and consumed by the fact that you're having Kabbalah Sol. Yeah. It's not about what you're feeling. That's the point. <laughs> but practically speaking, like I'll just speak for myself. I'm 22, very young, definitely. I mean, I don't know which generation I fall into, but definitely in that I generation. What practical tips would you give to incorporating that type of submission that isn't like a self-obsessed submission? Like not this like, oh, yes, I sacrificed my entire life for God. But just like, yeah, of course, I'm so grateful to be able to do this. You know, I think that learning is a great source of inspiration. And when we're inspired about what it is that we're spending our life doing, you know, they say, if you love what you do, you won't work a day in your life. So this is that same concept, but on steroids. If you have found your calling, if you realize you're part of something larger, it's really just about doing as much as you can do. You know, just grab each day, grab each moment, grab each opportunity and spend less time ruminating and contemplating and assessing and analyzing how you feel about it. And if it's resonating with you and if you're calibrated and do it, you know, so we're going to, we're going to be up to the Parsha where God says to Moshe, when they're at that the Sea of Reeds, the Yamsuf, and there's such a tumult, and some Jews are saying, let's fight the Egyptians, and others are saying, let's just throw ourselves into the water and commit suicide, and others are saying, let's go back to Egypt, and others are praying, and God says, you know what, everybody? Just go forward, travel, just go. Do just it. go. Do you think that there's any worth to taking your inner temperature, recognizing that it's hard, and then doing it anyways, as opposed to kind of just like, just do it, just do it without... You know, feeling no, that's okay. about it. Listen, I don't want I don't want to give the impression that I'm like this sadekist, this righteous person and, and constantly, you know, just wrapped up in all these spiritual ideas and doing everything I have to do. That is definitely not the case. So yeah, I mean, sometimes things are gonna be hard. Okay. So sometimes things are hard. Okay, so acknowledge that and then do it, even though it's hard. I mean, <laughs> there's just no other way. People don't become Olympic winners by not practicing every single day. And it's really tough. It's really hard. Every single day getting up and doing it, you know, you don't win any races like that. You you don't become a world-class musician in a vacuum. 
everything worth accomplishing is going to take a lot of work. It's going to take time. It's going to take discipline. And I don't like this word, but yeah, sometimes it will take sacrifice and that's okay. How much sacrifice is okay? As much as necessary. Come on. Here's the counterintuitive thing. This is actually how we thrive. This is actually how we find what's really stuck inside of us. You know how they say like we use a very small percentage of our brain? I think we use a very small percentage of all the power and gifts we've been given. And sometimes we just have to be squeezed for that wine or that olive oil to come out. This is a counterintuitive truth that the more we give, the more we get. That's why I don't like the word sacrifice. We're not sacrificing anything. Right. It's a privilege to be able to accomplish. It's a privilege to be able to do a project, even if it's difficult. That's a good point. I'm sure you can hear that I'm naturally resistant to this entire concept of Cabal Sol. It's like a hard thing for me to swallow. I like what you said that if you're committed, and that resonates with me, dare I say, but it does really resonate with me, which is that if you are committed to something and you're really committed and you're committed to any project or any profession or to God, then yeah, sometimes it will take submission to the the higher purpose, whatever that is in your life. And that's God. Right. I mean, anybody who's gone to medical school will tell you the same thing. Law school. I mean, (laughs) anything is going to take, yeah, submission to the goal. We're just very privileged that we get to submit to the master of the universe. You have to have an equal amount of passion and commitment and excitement and feeling of choice to God that you would if you chose to go to medical school. So you have to be aware. Being connected to Hashem is something that I want so badly that I will do what it takes. The same way that a doctor will literally sacrifice 10 years of his life to be in medical school. Yeah, I would say the difference is that you need to have equal parts passion and humility. That is the most important part of the equation. Because when you choose a path, whether it's your career or your avocation, whatever it is, it's your choice. And you'll do what it takes to follow through. If you have that type of grit and determination and tenacity and ambition, you'll do what it takes, right? But that was your plan. The difference here is that with Kabbalah's Ol, it's God's plan. And sometimes it will conflate with your plan and you'll find yourself very easily and comfortably within that plan. And sometimes it's going to take Messiris Nefesh. Sometimes it's going to take Kabbalah's Ol. I think that's the difference. The humility has to be in the equation. How would you define humility in Yiddishkeit, in Judaism? I think humility comes from God consciousness. And that's really the story of our lives. Self-consciousness vying with God consciousness. And humility is about trying to put God consciousness before consciousness of the self. Always, 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 or as much as possible. Really realizing how small we are how transient, how ephemeral, how fleeting, how vulnerable. Do you think it's a goal to try to align your desires with God's desires so you don't feel like you're sacrificing on a consistent basis? Yeah. And I think that that's what learning does. Learning allows you to climb in love with God, if I dare say, and climb into that alignment But it still doesn't mean that at any given moment, there isn't going to be 
something that's going to come up that's not exactly resonating with you or not exactly what you want to do. But generally speaking, yes, of course, we hope to to be in alignment. And Hasidus Chabad is really all about that. It's really all about the process of conceptualizing our relationship with Hashem, our great privilege in being in that relationship, understanding just how small we are, and at the same time, just how much we mean to God and just how important our every action is and just how vulnerable God has made him herself for our overture. Now, if that isn't an audacious theological construct, I don't know what is. So that alone should instill a tremendous amount of humility in us. The thought that the omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth waits for me to daven, waits for me to do a mitzvah, and that is absolutely necessary. So when we learn on this level, when we learn these concepts, I think, yes, it's a tremendous sense of alignment. And I don't take it for granted. I don't take chassidus in my life for granted. It's the greatest gift. I'm hearing such a fierce clarity in your words, and I'm reminding myself, like, you're older. You've lived life for a longer time, and you've journeyed with this concept. How has your relationship with Kabbalah Saul and humility changed and shifted over the years? That's such an interesting question because really I'm very privileged. I grew up in a wonderful home. And like I said earlier, my parents, my grandparents, I was surrounded with strong, strong role models for all of these ideas without them ever being mentioned or articulated. I just saw it all around me. I went to a wonderful school you know, just everything aligned, really. And for this, I'm very, very grateful. I think that the real tension arose for me, like I said earlier, when I when I came onto the Binghamton campus and was pummeled constantly with questions and ideas that really were contrary to everything I had learned and challenged all of my fiercely held beliefs. And it was a journey to start learning in a different way, learning from sources and understanding it from the bottom up in a way where I could own it in a different way and teach it and share it. But like you said, it's also about getting older and living through different experiences. And it humbles you, it molds you, it deepens your relationship with God. It's much easier for me to daven now. I gravitate naturally to saying to Hillam, it's not like a chore or something I have to do. And I've seen this happen with so many women around me. Uh, there's something about, you know, getting through those years where you can't catch your breath. You know, it's like, it's just survival, survival mode years, you know, where you're having young children and there are so many demands on your time. And especially if you also want to do some other things at the same time. And it's almost like, I should daven. I should daven. And now it's different. It's like, I, you know, yeah, I'm going to daven. I want to daven. And I, and I want to say to Helen, it's kind of like a comfortable place, you know, with Hashem, where you, you're just in a comfortable relationship. But it takes time. Some things can't be rushed. Some things can't be rushed. <laughs> the young no, people will even be in more 2021, there are some things you cannot get via Amazon. <laughs> And there are some things that will not boot up within the first nanosecond. You know, it's it's not a function. It's not a setting on your phone. It's like a natural evolution. It's a process. What's your message to young people? 
get over yourself and allow yourself to become the great person you can't even imagine in your wildest dreams. It's almost like by wanting everything to conform to our plan, we limit ourselves. Because there are so many things that happen in life that you can't see coming that take you in directions you never knew existed and can open up doors that you never dreamed of walking through. That's a beautiful point. When you allow Hashem to take over and you stop trying to micromanage what you can accomplish. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's, you know, read anything about the 12 steps, no, you got to let go and let God. That's what Kabbalah Soul is about. It's about submission to something larger. Somebody very smart once said that God created man in his image. And ever since we've been trying to return the favor, you know, we, we got to stop that. Right. We got to realize that, uh, no, it's not our job to create God or God's will. It's our job to submit. You are someone who really advocates for women making time to learn Torah and to study and to teach, etc. So if a woman naturally wants to study and wants to teach, but she feels that at this time in her life, God wants her to submit to childbearing or child raising, would you say that it's time to submit or the two could coexist? Everything in my personal background has led me to believe that the two can coalesce. You know, just very personally, my mother, I think she already had nine of her 11 children when the Rebbe gave her a project and told her to work on it 25 hours a day. And he wasn't trying to be clever or witty. He was telling her that this needed her attention, her all-encompassing attention at that time. So being a mother and doing other things, those two are not mutually exclusive. There are times where one is going to have to eclipse the other for whatever reason. But generally speaking, I think we got this. I think we could chew gum and walk at the same time. That's very endemic to womanhood, multitasking. You know, I think that when you when we don't submit, when we don't have this concept of bitl, that's another Hasidic term that we should pull in here because it's really like a tripartite. You know, you have the Kabbalah soul, you have the mysterious nefesh, and the bitl. And they're really three terms that are inextricably bound. And bitl means self-abnegation. And if you truly abnegating the self to something transcendent and higher, so both your motherhood and all of your other overtures, they're all part of one whole. And there isn't that conflict and that tension. Like, should I be doing this? But I should be doing that. It's all part of what you need to do. And that's very freeing. That's a great gift nice. to live that way, to understand that it's like, look, if you have two children or three children or four children, what do you do when they all need your attention? You do the most you can for each one of them. Which one are you going to throw out in the street? So this is the same thing, understanding that there are things you need to do for your children, there are things you need to do for your home, there are things you need to do for the world entire, for God's home, for the dear Lois for this for this dwelling place in this in this lower realm that we were all sent here together to build and to accomplish. It's not that you're being torn by two conflicting forces. They're part of one overarching mission. Yeah, and you're going to have some days that are harder days. No question. But at least you're not suffering the guilt or the the self-doubt that plagues people very often. Because I think that's a true definition of happiness. 
knowing that what you're doing is exactly what you're meant to be doing. You're on the road you're meant to travel down. And then even if it's difficult, it's not going to erode at your happiness base because you know who you are, why you are, what you are. That's really beautiful. The fact that the submission and the personal you know, teaching or study are part of the same thing. Yeah. Not- I, 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 to me, that's absolutely pivotal. Our lives are holographic and there, there are all these components, but they're all part of a whole. One truth. And that is the truth about our soul being sent down into this world to accomplish certain things. But it's all part of one schema of God's will. I love that so much because I think that it reframes Kabbalah's soul because then it's not about, it's all connected to your soul's mission. And if you can really view it that way, then it's it's not Yeah, you're not sacrifice. being pulled in two different directions. Exactly. You know, because when you take a rubber band and you pull it in two different directions simultaneously, at a certain point, it has to snap. And I think that when you look at Chabad women in general, you look at Chabad shluchos, you look at Chabad te- women, uh, female teachers, you look at Chabad female leaders, if God blesses them in this way, they all have large families. Their lives are filled with so many responsibilities. But there really is the joy that comes from knowing that this is all part of why I'm here. So, you know, we who have been suffused with the Rebbe's teachings, with the Rebbe's guidance, we, we take for granted what a gift it is, really. Each person's soul's story is so multifaceted that there's going to be, I, I like, I'll bring back in the example that you gave, which is about maintaining your Chabad house, which is that there's teaching and there's writing and there's learning and there's connecting with the students. And then there's also cutting the vegetables for the Friday night meal and taking out the trash and organizing the spreadsheets. It's all connected. So the same is true with our own soul's mission is that there's elements of our soul's mission, which is going to feel like taking out the trash. And there's elements that will feel like self-actualization, you know? Absolutely. I like that a lot. And you know what? In the moment, sometimes you can't see how this part of what you're doing is so integral to your mission. And it doesn't feel scintillating. It's not exciting. It's only with time and with remove that we can begin to see that. Of course, we'll never ultimately see the whole picture because we're so circumscribed by our limitations. But yeah, we can't get stuck in the moment. And we cannot get stuck in our own heads. It's just a very small place to be. I hear people say that often about motherhood, that 30 years, 40 years, whatever it was down the line, they look back and they're like, oh my gosh, look what I built. And in the moment, they didn't necessarily see it. Yeah, I'll never forget after my first daughter got married. So the year after she was married, she gave my husband and I a special gift for Shalach Manus. She gave us a plastic frame, not incredibly valuable per se, but to me, invaluable. Right. It was a plastic multifaceted frame and there was a picture of each child. She had taken those portraits from the wedding and she put them in one really nice frame and she gave it to us as a present. And I looked at that and I just started to cry. And every time I think about that, I go back to that moment, I start to cry again because I think until that moment, it was hard for me to realize the enormity of what this was that was staring me in the face every single day. Wow. But was, you know, eclipsed by the diapers and the dishes and and the appointments 
and the screaming and the crying and the ear infections and the, the teeth that are about to come out and the teeth that are coming in crooked and the teeth that are coming in behind the teeth. And, you know, that's tremendous. I can so understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm a new mother. I'm young. You think of it as having babies, but it's not about having babies. You know? You're building something eternal. And it, it really is the greatest contribution we can make. Anything we do for God is eternal and we don't see it. And that's, I guess, well That's absolutely the truth. What about those moments when there are two things vying for your attention and you don't know which one God wants from you? So you say, okay, I'm willing to submit and I'm willing to surrender, but I don't know what Hashem wants from me in this moment. How would you find clarity in knowing within yourself the voices that are saying, yes, you're correct, God wants you to do X or God wants you to do Y? And even though, yes, it's part of one whole, sometimes as human beings, we have to make those choices. Right. Because we can't do, you know, we can do everything and anything, but not all at the same time. I would say that that's why having a mashpia, a spiritual mentor is so important because ideally that person is older, has a little bit more life experience, has the objectivity that comes with remove, and can try to be helpful in that department. I mean, it's it's true in every area of life. You know, every psychiatrist needs a psychiatrist. Every physician needs to have a physician. Sometimes we we just, we can't do it for ourselves. We need somebody outside of ourselves. How would you pick apart the voices in their head and how would you determine if something was... I mean, obviously, it's a lot more nuanced than that. I'm saying a situation would be more complex. But would you have like any benchmarks kind of for what that would look like? Nothing terribly mystical. You know, I think it would begin with logic. Let's say this person has a certain amount of time and there are these two opportunities. You know, which one are they better at? Which one is more important in terms of contribution to the community or the world at large? Which one is more pressing? Those would be some of the questions I would ask. In order to Which do- one can only this person do? You know, there might be things other people can do. You know, and going back to motherhood, my aunt went through a time where she was having great difficulty. The children were coming very quickly and with very little time between each one. And she ended up going to see the Rebbe in a personal audience in Yechidus. And she cried and she said, I, I just, you know, I can't, I can't do this. And the Rebbe looked at her and he said, only you can bring these souls into the world. But there are many other things that can be done by other people. So I think that's a very important part of it, you know, making choices. What can only I do because God has vested me with certain talents or certain strengths or certain perspectives that other people can't do? That has to be an important part of the equation. Oh, nice. That idea, for example, getting cleaning help. You don't have to submit all of your physical energy to cleaning and laundering constantly. Yeah, why would you do that? Right. That's not Kabbalah salt. That's a waste. <laughs> right. Terrible waste of time, resources, your resources, your physical, emotional, psychological bandwidth. That's no way to waste it. So you want to prioritize what is irreplaceable about you as a woman. Mm-hmm. Part of that is childbearing. Absolutely. And then work from there. And then when you have to submit, you know with confidence, because I think that's important is that when you are submitting and when you are surrendering, you know, again, I, I hate that even I keep, I keep saying it because I, I love that point you made at the beginning is that this, that the surrender shouldn't be like so self-consumed, 
But when when you do consciously make a choice, like I do this for you, Hashem, uh-huh. you should be confident that you know this is what He wants you to do, and Absolutely. you're not being silly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that brings us back to how privileged we are because we have teachings that tether us to what's eternal and absolute and valuable and enduring. It's not like we have to guess. Yeah. We have somewhere to look. Thank you for your time. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and life experience. I have to say, I felt like I felt like you were so pointed in a way that I could really appreciate and in a way that made me wince in a good way. I was like, ooh. This is something I need to hear. And I'm sure I'm not the only one, you know? So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real joy. And go, girl. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at the Tanya Project or by email at humanandholy at gmail.com. If you like today's episode or want to support the podcast in a small way, I'd love if you could take a quick minute to leave a rating or review. It helps other people find the podcast and it's really nice. <laughs> I love how Rafiki stressed here that when we submit ourselves to God, we don't lose out on anything. Often, the submission itself is what leads us to our greatest gifts. It can be very easy to get lost in our limited perception of our lives. Connecting to God is not a sacrifice, when even just the connection itself is the greatest gift. It's inevitable that there will be parts of our lives or even parts of our divine service that feel like taking out the trash. We can feel the burn and do it anyways. We are not only gifting ourselves with a connection to God. Often, in retrospect, we'll find that the act of submission itself is what brought us to life's greatest treasures. <laughs>